If you've been told you have the ApoE4 gene that puts you at risk for Alzheimer's, or you think you may have it, most likely your doctor told you there's nothing you can do. But that's not entirely true. Today, we'll share the nine things you can do to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's. I am Dr. Shabnam Daskar, a functional medicine doctor and a certified tiny habits coach. I teach people how to improve their focus, get rid of brain fog, and reduce their risk of dementia. And I'm Andrea Spiros. I'm a behavior design consultant and professional speaker. I work with organizations to harness the power of high-performance habits to increase engage engagement, resilience, and well-being. Today, we're talking about the ApoE4 gene, uh, what it is, and, and why you might be concerned. But also, we're really going to get to the nine things you need to do or can do to support you in reducing your risk of getting actual Alzheimer's. So talk to us briefly, Shabnam, about the ApoE4 gene. So the ApoE4 gene, there are three different kinds. The Sorry, not the ApoE4, three different kinds. The ApoE gene are three different APOE2, 3, and 4. Now, I don't know why there is no APOE1, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> if you have uh, a single variation of the APOE4 uh, or two variations of it, you are at a much higher risk for Alzheimer's disease than someone who doesn't have. Now, I want to make this very clear. Uh, APOE4 is, is one of the genes now, Alzheimer's disease is, you know, dementias like Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is just one type of dementia, the many other types. There are multiple, multiple genes for dementia, but the ApoE4 gets a lot of, uh, you know, prominence because it is uh, quite common. And most importantly, this is what Andrea and I always talk about, is your genes do not decide your destiny. So how do you get the ApoE4 or the ApoE gene? You get one copy of it from your mother, one from your father. So even if your parents have, let us say they have one copy and um, you have your four brothers and sisters, maybe one brother or sister has not got any of them. Another one might get two copies of it. Another, a third person may get uh, one copy and a fourth person may get one copy. So it's different ways of inheriting it. And again, it would depend on how whether your parents have two copies or one copy. If they have one copy, they may give it to you. They may not give it to you. If they have two copies, obviously, they are going to give you one. So it's I guess it's sounding very complicated. Bottom line is a lot of people get very uh, you know stressed about this whole thing, whether they should know about their APOE4 status or not. Maybe they are suspecting that they might be having or their parents if their parents have dementia so the bottom line is you know it's different things for different people andrea you and i have talked about this with you know julie bergfeld in the previous episode and she is someone who lives with the apoe4 gene and she shared all the different things she does but again i you know it bears repetition if you have either one or two copies of the ApoE4 gene, it is not absolutely, absolutely certain that you will have dementia. Exactly. You can change your risk. That is the, the most important message we want you to go away with. Yeah, if you just stop listening right here and all you took away was you can change your risk, 
that would be fantastic. Obviously, we'd like you to continue listening to have some practical actions that you can take to actually reduce your risk. And do you want to talk about those now in terms of what are the nine things you can do? Why don't we dive in a little bit to the nine things that you can do to support yourself? Some of these you already know. And we're going to cover those briefly at the beginning because there's a lot that's out there and you probably know the first few. We're going to go into a deeper dive on some of the ones that you may not know. And we're going to encourage you to pick things as you're listening that you think you can get yourself to do. And then actually take some steps to that. You don't have to do everything here. Just start with the things you can get yourself to do, and then you'll be moving in the right direction. So yeah, that's a very important point, Andrea, because, you know, one question that we get very often, should we test for, you know, if I'm suspecting uh, I could be having it in my family, should I test for it? So the question is, if you know you have one of the genes, one of the variations, are you going to do something about it? So you need to decide before testing whether you would like to do something about it and what you can do is what we're going to talk about today. But if you decide that you don't want to do anything about it, then perhaps it may not be a great idea to get tested either. So it's a very, it's an important decision that you need to take and uh, you need to have a conversation with you know someone who will understand and help you go through the whole process. Exactly. So, uh, Andrea and I have talked about the three foundations of brain health, optimal blood glucose, optimal blood pressure, and low levels of chronic inflammation. We have multiple episodes talking about those things. So those foundational things are equally important in someone with APOE4. And I, I will keep saying APOE4, it means both one or two variations. Those people who have two or uh, of the APOE4, they are at a higher risk than one with a single one. So those are actually even more, the foundations of brain health are even more important for people with the APOE4 gene. And the next thing is, um, uh, Andrea and I have talked about sleep and the food you eat, movement, mind-body interventions. So we have multiple episodes on uh, sleep. We already have, I think, about four episodes. Yes, four episodes probably on sleep alone. So and all those things are equally or actually, I would say, even more important for someone who is at a higher risk. And uh, and movement, of course, we had a wonderful episode with our fellow Tiny Habits coach, Jeff. So those are basic stuff that, you know, I'm sure most of our uh, audiences heard about them from not just us, from I think almost everyone who talks about brain health. Right, out in the wild. So the first thing you can do is pay attention to the foundations of brain health, your optimal blood glucose, your optimal blood pressure, and to keep low levels of inflammation. The second thing you can do is pay attention to your basics, your sleeping, your eating, your moving, and then your mind-body, the mind-body piece. Right. And then the third thing you can do, which most people don't aren't really aware of or they've only loosely heard of, and then they may not know what to do, is supplementation. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So supplementation, when we talk about, we talk about what is called therapeutic supplementation. The therapeutic supplementation means, and again, this is sort of like the idea that I like to you know talk about is. It is using supplements at doses which have shown benefits in research. 
So there, when it comes to supplements, there is something that all of us, a certain level that all of us need, which are called the RDAs, recommended dietary allowance. Now, recommended dietary allowance came up at a time when we were dealing with severe deficiency diseases like scurvy and rickets and all those. We don't deal with those diseases nowadays, but the RDAs were not reviewed after that. So here we are talking about supplements at doses which are which have shown benefits in uh, in in research papers. Now there are multiple uh, supplements we can think of, but the three primary ones that I absolutely absolutely talk I mean want to highlight. Number one is omega three fatty acids. Now omega three fatty acids. The good thing is we can actually test for levels of omega three fatty acids in the blood. It's a dried blood spot test. And uh, in the show notes, I'll add the name of the company in the U.S. which does it. And in many countries in the world, you can have that uh, kit ordered, ordered, and you have it shipped home. So omega three is uh, when it's tested, it is represented as a percentage. Now, studies have shown that people with the ApoE4 gene need a 10% level of omega-3s. And the rest of us who don't have the gene, we can do quite okay with 8 or 9%, but 10% is necessary. Now, is there a way to know whether you have high levels of omega-3 without testing? No. So even if you eat fish every day, you eat salmon, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even then you cannot get enough omega-3 from only food. And um, salmon is not, not the only source you know, for omega-3. There are others as well. So here is where adequate supplementation is very important. So the best way to know how much omega-3 you need to take is to get the testing done. And if you are not on a supplement at present, so this is what I tell my patients, Andrea. If you're not on a supplement right now, maybe you want to defer the test to three months after you start supplementing so that you know exactly how much you need. Now, again, there are some, um, we'll talk about omega-3 on a separate episode. Uh, for people who have atrial fibrillation, you need to be very careful to take high doses. So I'm not talking about taking high doses. And anyway, none of this is medical advice. This is information for you to you know understand the nuances. Exactly. And really what we want to encourage you is now Shabnam is a doctor, but she's not your doctor. So yeah. definitely run everything we're saying through your professional preferred licensed, whatever your uh, healthcare professional that you prefer to work with, run it by that before you take any advice. Because like I said, Shabnam is a doctor, but not your doctor. Yeah, so omega-3, ideally get the levels tested and find out. So omega-3 normally comes as an EPA and DHA, and higher DHA level is better for the brain. But interestingly, none of these supplements work all by themselves. So a very important study came up a few years ago called the Vitacog study. What they found in that study is for those, so this was a study on giving vitamin B supplements and omega-3s. What they found is B vitamins worked better at reducing something called homocysteine. We'll come to homocysteine very soon. In those people who had a higher omega-3 levels. So again, supplements, one single supplement doesn't work in isolation. They all work like a symphony. 
So just taking a lot of omega-3 while you're still deficient in vitamin Bs and Ds and iron, it's not going to work the same way. So there are no magic, no single magic supplements. Uh, you know, Andrea, I'm asked so often, tell me one thing I can take to help my right. mind. Everybody wants one thing to do. The secret <laughs> is that there's not only one thing to do, there's probably a bunch of little things to do that are going to have a greater cumulative effect. Just, I love, I love the idea of the symphony, right? It's not like you can just have the horn section or the drum section or the violins or the violas. Those are all, you need all those to make a beautiful symphony, but one of them alone is not going to make the symphony and they all have to be in balance. So to work together beautifully. So let's talk a little bit more about the vitamin, the Vitacog. So the Vitacog was this, that, you know, when they found that those people who had higher levels of omega-3, when they were supplemented with B vitamins, they did a whole lot better. Their levels of a particular blood marker called homocysteine and homocysteine can be tested anywhere in the world. High levels of homocysteine are bad for your brain, bad for your heart health, bad for mood issues, bad for fertility, essentially a whole lot of things. So you don't want your homocysteine levels to be high. And one of the causes of high homocysteine is deficiencies in B vitamins. So B vitamins, again, it's a fairly in, innocuous vitamin in the sense it's a water-soluble vitamin, so very unlikely you're going to overdose on them. Versus the fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin D, vitamin A, if you just take you know super high doses, there are risks. So vitamin B, it's a simple supplement available again anywhere in the world. So vitamin B is very important. And the other thing with uh, omega-3s is the brain takes about you know two years to do a complete turnover of all the omega-3s in the brain. So sometimes, Andrea, you know, I find patients who will say, oh, I'm just going to take the supplement for three months. Yeah. And what will happen after three months? Like, you're not going to get the omega-3s from Only magic. Kids. Magic will happen after three months. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes I say with divine intervention, it's going to remain high. Yeah, all of a sudden, it's going to tip the balance. <laughs> right. And I think the thing with the supplements is uh, sometimes we see the benefits, sometimes we don't see the benefits, but we probably are benefiting if we need them. Right. We uh, all of us want this magic switch to be like, oh, I took the, my vitamin D today and suddenly I'm full of energy and I feel 20 years younger. <laughs> yeah. Right? But maybe what happens is over the course of time of taking your therapy, you know, therapeutically supplementing, you do have more energy, but you don't necessarily see from day one to day now because you've moved through it so gradually. And most people don't go back and look at like, oh, three months ago, I really was foggy. You, we take our current state of health for granted. So taking taking them for a while, as you say, is important because the brain does take how many, uh, how long to turn over? Two years, at Two least years. in studies. Yeah. Yeah. Another important supplement is vitamin D3. And again, there is a, you know, you'll read one day you'll read, oh, vitamin D3 is very important for blah, 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 blah. Next day, oh, you don't need to supplement with it. So I just need, want to clarify here. Vitamin D, when they have done uh, studies where they actually measured the level of vitamin D before supplementing and they measured the levels after supplementing, those studies have shown that it is beneficial for the for not just brain health because vitamin D has multiple actions in the body. But believe it or not, Andrea, there are many studies 
where they actually did not really test the level of vitamin D in the blood. They just put everyone on a single dose of supplement. Uh, and obviously, everyone is not going to reach that optimal level of vitamin D. Right. And they are not going to see the benefits. So the thinking is, oh, you don't need vitamin D. No, it's not that. When you measure vitamin D, and again, vitamin D can be measured anywhere in the world, how much you need to take, the dosage will depend on your baseline levels. And even if you spend the entire summer out in the sunlight, sunbathing in with minimal clothes, you will still not always make enough vitamin D. And particularly, you know, with uh, darker skin color, how far away are you from the equator? A lot of factors. In, in fact, we'll do a separate episode on vitamin D, I think. <laughs> I think that would be a great episode. So yeah. Since we've referenced, we've 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 kind of dipped our toe into homocysteine. Why don't we talk about homocysteine next? So homocysteine, again, like I said, it's, you know, the, it's a blood test. It's a serum homocysteine and higher levels of homocysteine are... Uh, are a risk factor for heart disease, dementia, mood issues, reproductive issues. And I, as I mentioned before, the commonest reason is B vitamin deficiencies. Now, if you have already corrected B vitamin deficiencies, then you need to go to the next level. There are some genetic variations and things like that. So again, you need to meet someone who understands because homocysteine is, you know, considering that it's such a simple test available everywhere in the world, it's a surprise that, you know, not a lot of people get this test done unless they've met a functional medicine doctor. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about some, uh, a couple other things that, that people may not know. One of them, which it's on our minds lately, you and you and me both, is mindset. Talk a little bit more about mindset and why it's important. Yeah, Andrea, I was actually quite blown away by the you know research papers on how much mindset impacts our health. And since we're talking about APOE4 today, so again, I'll post the links to the studies in the show notes. So they did a study where these were people with the APOE4 gene, and they looked for what are called uh, positive aging mindset. So how you think about aging? Do you think that getting older is a time of decay and, you know, you're just going to be cognitively, you know, not functioning the same way, physical disabilities, joint pain, aches, you are not the same person as you were 20 years ago, versus if you think that, you know, getting older is not a time for decay, it is not like, oh, it's just everything just goes downhill. It's not like that. So those are the positive and the negative mindsets about aging. So what they found is if people had the APOE4 gene, but they had a positive aging mindset, they did not have as much higher risk for dementia. Or um, This particular paper, I think, actually looked at cognitive testing. So again, bottom line is their mindset changed how the, you know, the gene expression behaved. And uh, mindset actually can increase your lifespan by almost eight years, a positive aging mindset. Now, next point that, you know, Andrea, you and I have talked about, and we are still exploring that, is how do we change a person who has a negative aging mindset to someone who has a positive aging mindset? I haven't quite figured that out yet. Well, as you know, you and I have, like I said, this is uh, always a big topic for us. One thing we know as Tiny Habits Coaches is that sometimes just taking some 
action toward your aspiration can actually change your identity. So when we take people through the Tiny Habits five-day program where they choose three tiny habit recipes and then do them with our coaching behind the scenes via email, oftentimes they have an identity shift, which to me is deeper than a mindset shift, but they also have mind mindset shifts where they suddenly see that they can form habits fast and that change is possible. So it gives them a hopeful mindset for the future, if not a complete change in identity as someone who can change and set themselves up for healthy aging. So uh, while we know as tiny habits coaches, not everyone is the same and matching yourself to the actions you can get yourself to take is one way that you can help with your mindset. And also just being aware of your mindset can start to help to shift that. There's no, there's no magic pill and there's no magic wand with that. Yeah, and another, you know, tiny habits recipe we were toying around with that day, Andrea, was, you know, asking yourself, is this true? So let us say you, uh, I feel, you know, I have some joint pain in my left knee and my right knee is feeling fine. So first question very often would be, and I think I have a positive mindset. Now, I know it is situational. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> no, mindsets are never 100%. So we can no. all, they can all shift. So this is an example that Dr. Becca, Becca Levy in her book mentioned that someone who's 85 years old, he goes to the doctor with, you know, pain in one knee. And very often people are told, oh, that's because you're 85. But then his other knee is also 85. That one's not paining. <laughs> <laughs> so first and foremost, before you rush to the conclusion that this is because you are whatever age, you know, 65, 75, 70, Ask yourself, is it true? So if you feel that, you know, you see the people around you and sometimes you may find an example in in a public figure, you know, there is this very nice, uh, and I like to show that picture to people, an 87-year-old salsa dancer, Andrea. Nice. It's very inspiring. It's like if we want to talk about physical disability because we are older, we should look at our videos. Yeah, I will. I will tell you that my dad played racquetball into his 80s. Now, also be very clear. He he didn't. He 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 played a 40 year old guy, and there were two 80 year old guys. You know, my dad and another guy against the 40 year old, but he still played, and that kept his brain healthy and his body healthy and. He didn't take any medications uh, up until, you know, a certain point he started taking a baby aspirin. But, um, you know, he had a very positive mindset around that. Let's talk about, let's talk about hormones now too, because there's a lot that can go on with hormones, especially with women, but men too. Okay. Yeah. Hormones are a huge topic and we have talked about hormones and hysterectomy and hormones and brain health and other uh, episodes. So number one is we know that more women than men have uh, get Alzheimer's disease. Now, there was a time it was thought that because women live longer, so age is one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's. So that's why they have more Alzheimer's. But that is not the only reason. So lots of recent brain imaging studies have, you know, they've uh, found that women in the menopausal transition, so that means uh, menopause is 12 months of not having a cycle and the 
eight to 10 years before that date is considered the perimenopause or the menopausal transition. So that means at that point in time, Andrea, women are much younger and they are not expecting to feel a whole lot of symptoms like, you know, sleep issues, anxiety, depression, right. brain fog. Suddenly, many of them are caught unawares because they were not expecting anything to happen so many years before menopause. And even their doctors are sometimes surprised because this information is not available everywhere. Thanks to a lot of awareness building these days, uh, people are probably more aware, but there's still a large percentage of women who don't know that 10, 8 to 10 years before their menopause, they may experience a whole bunch of symptoms. Now, going back to APOE4 and hormones, so when they looked at brain imaging in younger women in the perimenopausal period, what they found is their brain glucose, uh, the brain's ability to utilize glucose is less. But this is, again, not a story of just doom and gloom. Uh, when women were put on hormone therapy, and hormone therapy, again, it's a special safe type of hormone therapy where they used estrogen on the skin and oral micronized progesterone. For details about what particular hormone therapy and all that, I would suggest that you um, listen to the episode on women and hormones and the brain. So women who used hormone therapy, they had a whole lot less of these particular, uh, you know, these are called amyloid beta pathway chemicals. So amyloid is again related to Alzheimer's disease. I don't want to want it to sound too complex. Basically, <laughs> the short form of this whole thing is those women who were on hormone therapy and had the APOE4 gene, they had lesser of these amyloid, you know, markers. And again, the other important factor when we talk about hormone therapy is the timing. So early hormone therapy within five to six years of menopause is found to be better than hormone therapy later on. Now, it doesn't mean you cannot take hormone therapy later, but it's better if you use that particular window. And again, I know it's sounding way more complex, but you need to have a conversation with your doctor about this. And some doctors may not be aware of the timing. And a lot of women are, you know, given incorrect information that hormones are going to kill you and they're not for you and you don't have any, you don't have hot flashes, so you don't need hormones. Right, right. So do your own, you know, find a find a professional that's a match for you, that's on the same page as you. That's really... And who, really who knows about hormone therapy? Because too many people are like discouraged to use hormones. I have studied hormones, so I have a very different, and I'm personally on hormones. Yeah. So let's talk about things that uh, a couple more things that are maybe you, you won't know or people don't generally talk about. What about head trauma? And most people oh. are most people are thinking like, OK, only professional sport players get head trauma or I never really had, uh, you know, I wasn't a rough and tumble kid. So I didn't really have a, I haven't had anything like that. Talk a little bit about uh, head trauma and what it is and why it's important in terms of okay. having the people for gene. That that's a that's a big one, and quite often people don't connect head trauma with dementia down the line. So, uh, head trauma in anyone who has who has the APOE4 gene or doesn't have the APOE4 gene places them at a higher risk for dementia years later. 
And the other thing that, you know, very is very often missed is sometimes it's mild head trauma. So in medical terms, it is traumatic brain injury, mild TBI. Now, there is nothing mild about TBI at all. So if someone has not, you know, been knocked off completely, completely unconscious in a severe road traffic accident, it does not mean that head trauma of, you know, falling from a stool while you're trying to reach a higher shelf. Right. Or, or banging know. your head as you come up on the kitchen cabinet really hard. Yeah. So these are the what would be called mild TBI. Those are not so mild. And my suggestion would be if you are someone who's experienced that, do not ignore it. You need to meet someone who is who knows what to how to deal with, you know, any kind of traumatic brain injury. The particularly, you know, what people will say, oh, you didn't you didn't have, you know, you didn't lose consciousness. So you were absolutely fine. You just had a few headaches. You should be OK. It is not that. So that is and how it in relation to the APOE4 gene. So, Andrea, just before we started recording, I was talking about so a woman who has the APOE4 gene, one or two variations and who is in menopause, not on hormone therapy, and has head trauma, and is a heavy alcohol user, that is not a great picture. That right. is it's just like just like we talk about with supplements. One supplement isn't going to suddenly boom, you're better. The combination of them can support you and they work in symphony to, to one another. The opposite is true too. If you have multiple, if you're not moving, if you're not sleeping well, if you're have a bad mindset and in the scenario that you describe and you have the gene, then you're more susceptible to Alzheimer's. Now, all is not lost. Just start where you are and you can turn the ship around. Let's talk about alcohol since you mentioned uh, alcohol. So um, I'll I'll be brief. The safest amount of alcohol is zero. And I love red wine. So it's not like, you know, but yeah. So, you know, the thing is, if you know your APOE4 status, let us say, you know, that you have either one or two variations, maybe you're going to make a different decision about alcohol. You know, all those stories about red wine being beneficial for your, I don't know what it's supposed to be beneficial for. All that not, true. not true. The safest amount of alcohol is zero. In fact, I think it was last year that Canada came up with a sort of a spectrum of alcohol intake rather than, you know, are you a mild drinker, moderate drink? And women and alcohol is, again, quite different. Uh, because women have different metabolism and alcohol is also important when it comes to hormone therapy because uh, higher alcohol intake and estrogen levels can go up and risk for breast cancer and the whole lot. So, yes, and I think when it comes to alcohol, other than what we have done with cigarette smoking and making it socially unacceptable, I don't think there are easy solutions to, you know, and I'm not talking about alcoholism or alcohol dependence. It's like no, we know that's a different issue, really. Yeah. You just if you have this gene and this is an area where you where you consume, you know, you're drinking daily. This is an area where you may want to think about cutting back in order to support yourself. So yeah, and more importantly, maybe alcohol is not the first thing you want to address. You know, that that is like, the other important thing. So. Andrea, what would you say from a behavior design perspective? Someone who's not sleeping well, uses alcohol, thinking that it's going to help them sleep, does not move, 
does not uh, eat you know the right food do you think they should start with uh, addressing alcohol first if they don't feel motivated enough probably not from a behavior design standpoint i would say this is the question you need to ask yourself first of all you want to think about what's the easiest thing you can do so if you think you know i like i don't have a lot of alcohol i don't have the gene either but i don't have a lot of alcohol but for me if i had the gene maybe i have a drink or two a month for me that's an easy place for me to start to say you know what i just won't drink right that's just very that's a very easy place for me to start if yeah. i were different and i were having red wine daily with dinner that might not be the place to start so think about what's the easiest place you can start and then can you get yourself to do that say can i get myself to do this and if the answer is yes start there because wherever you start you're going to build some success momentum and it doesn't matter where you start it's just that you start let's talk about the last thing which is a sense of smell and yeah that that's like really interesting and um, lots of studies recently have come up where uh, they found that um, losing your sense of smell or your sense of smell being less intense than it was before is a risk factor for alzheimers and uh, studies have shown that people with the apoe4 gene have this loss of sense of smell earlier than people who don't have the gene now obviously what will you do if you find that your sense of smell is going down the interesting thing is there is something called odor training and odor training means you basically sniff a bunch of stuff that is one way another way is using essential oils and there was a very interesting study where the people used seven different essential oils each night of the week and they um, put it in a essential oil diffuser so two hours every night and i started doing that you know interesting you know, how's it working i don't know because the fact is i should have done a brain test just before and another one three months later but i thought you know i have a diffuser at home which has a timer i have a bunch of really nice essential oils why don't i start it so the researcher who did that i'll post the link to the paper they are going to come up with an easier to use version rather than you know opening and sniffing 40 bottles of essential oils exactly don't do, you don't have to do that no just just you can start off with if you have a diffuser already because their device has not yet come up we are all waiting for it so the straining your sense of and smell the memories of smell are some of the oldest memories we have so andrea if you think back you know there are some memories like i know for sure one memory from my childhood is sandwiches now yeah. of course i don't eat gluten and i grew up we grew up eating a lot of bread like bread was our number one go to right right so easy and my mother used to make these really tasty sandwiches and when i smell them nowadays it reminds me of that time yeah it can really evoke memories yeah. so we have if you are noticing a slightly you know decreased sense of smell that is is a, a signal too so yeah and again there are tests available there are some sniff tests uh, that are can be done but again it's not like you just uh, you know go some tell your doctor that i just want to do a sniff test right. but it's it is available my point is there are ways to know figure that out there are some you know sniff uh, strips which you can do at home 
and you know figure out or if you are someone who can't smell the burnt toast or burnt food on the right and you'll then you'll know for sure yeah so so uh, we've talked we've covered a lot today but i'm going to review the nine thing the nine things you need to know so first of all you need to pay attention to uh, the three foundations of brain health your optimal blood glucose, your optimal blood pressure, and having low levels of inflammation. Second, you need to pay attention to sleeping, eating, moving in your mind, mind body practices. Third, we talked about therapeutic supplementation. Fourth, we talked about mindset. Fifth, we talked about hormones. Then we talked about homocysteine. Uh, sixth, head trauma, and then alcohol, and then your sense of smell. And there's all a lot of things you can try in here. Definitely seek out your preferred healthcare professional to verify what's the right move for you. And then think about what can I get myself to do that's going to have impact towards supporting my, my system to uh, respond better and not turn on the APOE4 gene. So the APOE4 gene is not a death sentence. You definitely have some agency. Your genes do not determine your destiny. And we've listed a whole number of things that you can do to support yourself in that. So thank you for listening. Please subscribe. You can find this and all the podcasts on at drcar.com slash podcast. That's drkarmd.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.